0: I am thrilled to have talked to Dr. Sue Carter in this episode. She is a pioneering neurobiologist who has dedicated her career to researching oxytocin, often called the love hormone or the bonding chemical. Oxytocin is part of everything we love, cuddling, romance, sex, mothers bonding with their kids, trust, and pro-social behaviors. Dopamine has gotten a ton of attention in recent years. Due to, you know, her lacking ability to pay attention and the ways that our modern tech hijack our dopamine systems. While dopamine is about the there and then it's about anticipating stuff, acquiring things and motivating action. Oxytocin is about here and now safety, openness, trust. It's not just about those things, but it's a crucial player there. It would be sort of nice for us to think a little bit about how we design tech and how that impacts our oxytocin systems. We dive into that in our conversation today, and Sue and I also talk about her research. And we talk about the ways that we as a society have misunderstood the human body, most importantly highlighting that we can't actually be understood as separate independent beings because our very nature is tribal and connective. So we talk about how those myths came to be, what impact that has had on our healthcare and pharmaceutical industries and research throughout the past few decades. And we talk about what the modern research landscape can teach us and what business and lives in a better future might look like. Thanks for being here. Let's dive in. So Dr. Carter, so excited to have you on the podcast. Just a few moments ago, we were talking about this moment in time that we find ourselves in and the opportunity and challenge that my generation faces because of the society that we've inherited. Could you talk a little bit about what you mean with the the challenges and opportunities that exist in this moment in time?
1: Okay, Matt, I'm not a psychologist, but I've been hanging around with them for well over 50 years. My husband, Stephen Porges, writes a lot and talks a lot about human behavior, and I help study it by trying to deconstruct some of its ancient origins. So the question Mm. you and I have discussed a little bit, the one that's really the big question for this moment is, how can we get beyond a time when we focused on individualism and taking care of ourselves, all of which we still must do, but also allowing for a bigger perspective? a larger view of what's going on. And for me, that's a biological question because that's what I studied, but also because I think that humans have a deep biology that allows them to connect to and use others. We don't always recognize it. And until recently, scientists didn't really study it. They studied just the individual. But there's a specific biology, I've called it sociostasis, that allows Mm. us to connect to others and to use others to Mm. modify our physiology, our behavior, our health. It's all stuck together. We're all part of one large organism.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. And I love sociostasis. Is it's, it really highlights the you know, the work of Lisa Feldman Barrett, how she really has made allostasis in the body budget such a powerful concept that really the the brain evolved to regulate the body. And yet this piece that we've now learned, thanks to your work and many others over the past few decades, is that the brain isn't the only thing that's regulating the body. It's also all of the other bodies that we're in community with that are helping us to regulate stress.
1: Yeah. Without them, we don't survive. All you have to do is look at what happens when someone's put in social isolation. This is going on in Russia with a chap named Navalny, who was poisoned and then punished for objecting. They put him in social isolation. He'll probably die from it. They'll feed him. But What they're doing is specifically starving his nervous system. The physical effects of social isolation are so well known that when we look at a concept like allostasis, we have to wonder why they called it that and why they focused on the individual. The chap who did that work originally was a physiologist He didn't recognize sociality, I've combed this allostasis literature, and most of it does not take into account the fact that the nervous system evolved and functions in a social environment. Without Mm. it, we die.
0: Without it, we die. And so, as I sort of just sit with that, one of the things that really come up with me is a sense of heartbreak over the past few decades, and really centuries of just how, how we have been living, and the stories that people have carried about how they should be living. That often, I see people going in well into their 30s, sometimes their 40s, sometimes really far into life, and then eventually realizing that they've They've been living by rules that aren't getting them what they thought they would. And oftentimes the folks I'm working with, that's people who build a big, bright, shiny life. And then it ends up being hollow and not fulfilling. And then they ask, well, what, what did I do wrong here? And often what it is, is we feel so unworthy of belonging and connection. And we end up hustling and performing. And trying to produce so that we can get worthy enough. So we can kind of follow that Maslow's hierarchy where we're we're gonna get enough food and water and sleep, and then we're gonna get enough money, and then we'll be worthy enough. Then we're worthy of love and belonging. And then people go through their lives and they discover that game actually doesn't get them what they want. And now we're learning that actually Maslow never created a hierarchy, and that those rules that we've been told of Get enough food and water, get enough money, and then your inner needs can matter, are actually totally backwards. And it really it's there's a heartbreak there. There's a hope too, because we're having conversations about it, but there is also just a real grief about it.
1: Well, I'm pretty optimistic. And the reason I am is that I live in a world that's increasingly populated by your generation who I think came into a time when they had most of what they needed. Most of their physical needs were met. And they had some space and time to think about these things. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having this conversation. There wouldn't be change. I think there's change going on at an incredible rate. We don't have all the answers, but At least now we can honor the body. We can honor the fact that we have a physiology that thrives in the presence of others.
0: Amen. And then something that comes up for me is if we were to unpack some of this. So let's say you were on an airplane with somebody and they're not a parent. They're like a CEO of a tech company. And you get to talking to each other, and they discover that you've spent decades studying something called oxytocin. And they say, oh, oxytocin, is that something I should care about? What would you tell them?
1: I'm a little bit biased in my perspective of oxytocin. I encountered it. I actually, I'm writing a paper I'm calling Close Encounters with Oxytocin. I encountered oxytocin personally when my first son was born in nineteen eighty, and I was given it, and I couldn't find anything to tell me what had happened. Did it matter? I was given this during his birth. I don't do drugs, I don't do medicine, so i was I wouldn't take any painkillers, but they forced me into the oxytocin with the threat of literally cutting me open otherwise. So I had to choose, right? Big choice, surgery or an injection. The peptide, it's a peptide hormone made of amino acids. Turns out, I can show you evidence now, some of it my own. Others have done a lot of research on this there. Oh, 30,000, you can look up on PubMed Find thirty thousand articles on oxytocin. Okay, so should you know about it, whether you like it or not, it's at the center of what makes you human. What makes us all human? In the beginning, they thought it was a, and I have to put little air quotes around this, female reproductive hormone. Well, that was such a a, a false flag in a way. Yes, it is that but it's really a basic molecule that plays a role in inflammation. It plays a role in every aspect of the immune system. It plays a role, of course, in helping babies be born and helping to feed them with lactation. But it's probably, arguably, at least from my perspective, the most important molecule in the body. I saw a hormone, people like to, you know, kind of think in competitive terms. Well, dopamine, yes, dopamine, which you, I know, are interested in. That's a really important construct, a way of doing business, rewarding things, but it's just a piece of the puzzle oxytocin and dopamine are part of a system and that system allows us to be both social and healthy it's that important
0: so oxytocin is an essential aspect of what makes us human it's at the core of what makes us human and it's it's a crucial driver to our socializing to us regulating stress to really navigating through life as a human being.
1: I can say that with quite a bit of confidence after spending 45 years roughly studying it, 43 years. I began the day my son was born, but it was a slow start because there wasn't anything out there to know. And I started doing my own experiments using a little, animal that I was studying at the time called the prairie vole. I'm still studying prairie voles because they have a lot of human-like traits. They're a small rodent, but they're socially monogamous. They form pairs. Both males and females take care of babies. It's a lovely system and it's almost like a magnification. It's like having a microscope on sociality.
0: Mm. And, and prairie voles they're, they're about the size of like a house mouse, yet they can live up to three times longer. And your contention is that really the, the culprit for that or the thing to be thankful for that drives that health span for them is really their sociality.
1: Well, something's doing it. If you don't think the prairie vole's is important, you can ask a very simple question. Why do women live longer than men? And this is independent of war and self-destructive behaviors. What about human physiology is different in females and males? And part of that answer is oxytocin and the capacity of oxytocin to override, if you will, more primitive molecules. It has a partner called vasopressin, and the two of them are very adaptive kind of unit. They're a system. And what they do is allow us to deal with threat, with real danger, but also to switch back into a social mode so that if we come out of a situation, a sort of warlike situation, we can go back to being social, back to being friendly, back to helping others. And in fact, in soldiers or people under high levels of stress will form bonds. Those bonds are so powerful, they can be more powerful than family bonds. And the Navy SEALs will pick their partner over their family forced to make that decision. And that is very likely a combination of the effects of oxytocin and vasopressin.
0: And when it comes oh. to really creating those connections, we've now learned through things like the Longitude Adult Harvard study that for over 100 years has asked the question of what makes a happy and fulfilling life. And the greatest finding that they found is that really the greatest determinant of health span as well as fulfillment is the quality of one's relationships. Having access okay. to at least one high quality relationship and the thing that drives that quote unquote quality would be like trust. And the thing that allows us to feel empathy and open to trust is the magic molecule of oxytocin. Is that right?
1: I think you summed it up very nicely. Thank you, man. That's beautifully put. My general feeling is that oxytocin, because it's, it's sort of a quiet behind the scenes, factor. It's not flashy like dopamine, where you'll say, look, I can take some drugs, I'll get some extra dopamine, I'll have a very special feeling. But that feeling doesn't last. What matters to life are the chronic experiences, the long-lasting things that happen. And of course, that includes our social environment. It's so big that we can't see it. It's literally The elephant in the room or the Hmm. gorilla in the room, whatever metaphor you want to use. It's there all of the time, even in people who self-isolate. If you go into their heads, there are social things happening. Maybe they're angry. Maybe they have resentments. Maybe they have fear. But those fears will, and those experiences are often filled in a social context with how their life started, early life experiences, prime this system. I've worked a lot on this. And oxytocin is critical to the priming as well. So it's not just there at the moment. It's a molecule sure. that affects system throughout the entire lifespan. Perhaps the first three months of life are the most important time for oxytocin's actions to be registered. It sort of sets the thermostat.
0: Mm. I I love how you're highlighting that no matter who you are or where you are, you always have this social environment that you're carrying. And so the experiences that you've had throughout your life with other beings and thus the experiences also you've had with oxytocin have been crucial to shaping who you are and how you live. I often call this a relational regulation matrix that we all sort of walk around with a relational regulation matrix even if you're at home alone. You right. can you can feel those people that are closest to you and if there's a strain in that relationship that causes a strain in your nervous system. We can all feel that. And that when those relationships are solid That we actually feel secure in our reality.
1: Mm -hmm. Secure enough to think straight, secure Mm -hmm. enough to have clear cognition, not cognition that's filled with fear. So we need safety. This is part of what my husband calls a polyvagal theory. There's a whole autonomic nervous system piece to this story. Oxytocin and The vagus are one system. They're not separable. One's a chemical, one's much slower and registers changes in its receptor and so forth. The vagus is a big nerve, the largest nerve in the body regulates every organ. But behind the scenes, oxytocin's tuning the vagus and adjusting Mm -hmm. it so we have it different set point for reactions to, for example, fearful stimuli. And of course, the things that upset us the most, as you point out, and we're discussing, the long-term stressors are often, the chronic stress in life is often intermingled with our social experiences and our either presence or absence of a sense of social safety. And all of this is just so obvious once you look at it, but it wasn't measured. Oxytocin's a way of of giving a personality, a physical reality to some of these ideas.
0: Hmm. So oxytocin is like it's, it's a hormone. It's a neuropeptide. It's a, a molecule in the body that is a way to highlight the processes that are going on within the systems of who we are. That oxytocin, is, it sounds like you, you sort of describe it as as more of an indicator of these these processes that are flowing through the body.
1: It is that. And it's also a signal. It's a signal that probably says all clear. Okay, you mm-hmm. can now open up the channels to your nervous system. The parts of the nervous system that are above the hypothalamus, the parts that regulate our capacity for higher level thought, for spirituality, for mindfulness. We have data unpublished. For reasons I won't go into right now, but my collaborator died. And so it wasn't we don't quite got the paper out. He had pancreatic cancer and suddenly he's gone. But we did a study in California at Spirit Rock of Loving Kindness Meditation. And if your audience or you particularly are interested in mindfulness, you know that it's not easy to be mindful because the environment is constantly pulling us toward signals of danger, signals of fear, threat, even if they're just things stuck in our head. How we can move to that other state is really the magic question. It's a big question, I think, of the 21st century, is how can we control our own emotional state, our own capacity? to be not caught in fear, not caught in threat. And Um, I don't have a simple answer to that, but I can tell you the body is, you have to accommodate the body. You can't deny it. You can't say, I'll just think, I'll just rise above this
0: experience.
1: The nervous system, the hypothalamus, will drag you right back down. (laughs)
0: yeah it's the whole elephant and, and rider analogy right that for for so long within western society we have bought into this story that we are thinking beings that sometimes feel and now we're actually learning it's the exact opposite and when i when i used to work a lot with with schools i would talk about how the most essential skill for our kids in this world where they now have infinite potential stimuli that are artfully assaulting their attention, competing to try to get their attention. The most essential skill we could give them is the ability to harness and direct their own attention, the ability to cultivate mindfulness. And so I'm really curious in that in that study that you all did at Spirit Rock, what, did, what were your findings?
1: Yeah, well, two thirds of the people who went through the procedure did have an increase in oxytocin. Some of them, it was quite small, probably because they started high anyway, but I think we can think of it as a kind of biomarker for part of that system. Oxytocin by itself will not make you mindful. Keep that in mind. People always say, oh, give me some of that. Okay, just give me some of that. I'm tired. Of, <laughs> I'm tired of being uh, fearful. Whatever.
0: It'd cause, be nice if it was that simple.
1: Unfortunately, or well, fortunately, because the reason we survive is that this is an adaptive system, and under conditions when it's too dangerous to be social, we will revert to the other side, but. What happens if you try to fool the system, to fool mother nature by giving her extra oxytocin, she may identify the molecule and be triggered, may trigger the vasopressin system. That system is the one that says, take care of yourself first.
0: And it's the system that we're consistently triggering with the immense levels of loneliness that we have, which tells us that when we're this isolated that surely that can't be safe since our body evolved to be around other human beings. And we're around these technologies that are reinforcing this way of living that has such chronic stress that we really have the vasopressant system triggered quite a bit. Well,
1: my collaborator on this study, the reason we haven't published it yet, it was a very difficult study to do. It was done with the support of Jack Korn's to you probably know of, who's really a major person, mindfulness. For sure. My collaborator, Jim Harris, had known him. They were friends from the 1960s. They were really pioneers. Jim became a psychiatrist. Jack became a leader in this field. But we didn't have the resources. If there are people out there listening to this who want to help, we need to do this study right. Because what we didn't have was the capacity to, at the same time, run a group, groups of people having other kinds of experiences. Mm. We know that sitting quietly, whether you're mindful or not, probably will allow oxytocin to increase if you feel safe. Okay. At about the same time, another investigator in California, working at Spirit Rock, did a more standard mindfulness experiment, and he also measured oxytocin, and in his study, it didn't go up, it went down. Mm. Now, it's all context, okay? The mindfulness in the study we participated in that Jim designed with Jack Kornfeldt, it was all about feeling safe, and loving others hmm. regular mindfulness I think one of its vulnerabilities is just what you and I've talked about the nervous system switches over to loneliness or to feeling isolated
0: oh that's really interesting and so, it, so it sounds like that what you're talking too. about is this this landscape of the research and that we're really just beginning to really explore oxytocin when it comes to intrapersonal experience that we've we've had a lot of research over the past few decades about oxytocin as a social molecule in particular you know it started as really being called the the breast feeding molecule it was within women it's what people thought and then it became the love hormone where we know it was a part of sex and child then child rearing and pair bonding and then it's actually, we're opening up to see that, oh, it has a a huge role throughout the entire lifespan. And it's not just about pro-social, there's actual antisocial things that come up with aggression and envy. And now what I'm hearing you say is that there's also interesting things for us to learn, not just in how we relate with others, but in the quality of how we relate with ourselves. There's things that we can learn about oxytocin's impact there.
1: I totally agree with you, Matt. That's beautifully put the quality of how we interact with ourselves. And that's where mindfulness gets pretty tricky, doesn't it? There's no one else in there. The most successful mindfulness kinds of paradigms I've seen involve others, and they involve someone or other individuals who make us feel safe. Yeah.
0: Monks have the sangha where there is, there is community that you are held within. And so this, there's often this idea of like, the monk goes out into, into the cave and then they meditate all alone. But when you actually look through like history of humanity, very few people are reaching these lives where they feel whole and full, where they spend their entire life alone. Even oh. Siddhartha Gautama, when he then became enlightened, what did he do? He went back to the community. Like that within this, these stories of spirituality and mindfulness, it sometimes today can be like a, like a self-practice, go take care of your own stress by yourself, and it's about your attention. But what gets lost is that throughout the history of what mindfulness has always been in spiritual traditions, and now also through folks like Jon Kabat-Zinn's work, that mindfulness is and always has been about one's relationship with oneself within the context of our relationships with others.
1: Yes. Well, well put. So we're back to this larger construct. I will say in defense of biology as a way of asking these questions, once we begin to have a little deeper understanding of the system some of the things that we've sort of conjured up don't make any sense like sitting alone in a room for 40 days or whatever that's biologically untenable you might be able to pull it off under very special circumstances where someone gives you food water and shelter but in truth we we have to have others And our biology is so powerfully designed to be sure that's going to happen, that it will put us into states of agitation, fear, to make us look for others, if you will, to force us into sociality. Now, this Mm -hmm. can go wrong. This can clearly go wrong. So a balanced system is what you're looking for, a system that allows us to defend ourselves when it's necessary but to be social as much of the time as possible and therein as you said in its long longitudinal studies therein lies the secret to long life and good health
0: it's and i've heard you talk about this as really power that it helps us to understand has been crucial to our story of humanity, that of course, our sociality is so predictive of our health, because look at how we evolved and oxytocin's crucial role in that, that as, as mammals that are breastfed by mothers, oxytocin is actually crucial to the breastfeeding process, but also then to that bonding process, that rather than needing to live in a nest or a hive, oxytocin is part of this System that allows us to wander together and to create communities all over the world.
1: Right. And to form not just one bond, but many bonds, many kinds of social bonds. Sometimes people, when I talk about the Prairie Falls, they'll say, oh, wow, that's just a unique situation. And when we started that work, which was also 40, on more than 40, that was 45 years ago when I started working on prairie voles, I realized that they weren't simply making one social bond. They had the family, they had one primary bond, a reproductive bond, but even that wasn't as important as the social environment they lived in. And if you think about it, okay, oh, that's obvious, right? You can't just depend on one other. Even in humans, if that other's gone, you're in a very bad situation unless you've built a network. It's in all of our good interests to always extend our social network to to use and benefit from the larger social environment. This is It's so obvious to me. It doesn't seem like we should even be talking about it.
0: (laughs) Well, I wonder if maybe you can help me make sense of oxytocin a bit in terms of how we talk about it. Because for a long time, we we thought of it as the love hormone. But now we sort of understand that's a bit too simplistic. It's not just about pro-social bonding. That it's also a key player when it comes to like aggression and envy. And I know in Paul Zach's studies with his trust game, he even found that folks with social anxiety disorder had higher than baseline levels of oxytocin. So if oxytocin is this like crucial player in helping us connect with others and feel safety, why is it also such a player when it comes to aggression, envy, and anxiety? What is going on there? And how do we, what do we call it? Is it the moral molecule? Like Paul Zach says, is it the molecule of social salience that makes us pay closer attention, like what it, what exactly is going on with oxytocin?
1: Okay. Well, this, I, am asked this question a lot. People maybe uh, want to sell magazines and now their websites or whatever, their, their information content and constructs like love or even morality are very attractive. To getting our attention. But biology isn't based on that. It's based on an evolved system. As far as I can tell, oxytocin in its current form evolved about 200 million years ago as part of an adaptive system that included this other molecule, vasopressin. I have to Critique the constructs a little bit that have come, especially out of social psychology and economics, because they bought what I at that time was selling, I guess, indirectly, (laughs) the idea of oxytocin as this sort of royal molecule. And they didn't take into account that it sits as part of a unit, a system with the Defensive piece, as well as the prosocial piece, embedded there. The two molecules, oxytocin and vasopressin, only differ by two amino acids. Wow. Those amino acids, then, those slight differences in configuration make these molecules more easily bonded to receptors, but they can cross over under conditions of stress. We will go into self-defense. We do things that are destructive. They are not adaptive, except in the long term. So if you throw yourself on a ball to save somebody else, that's not, you know, that's only adaptive in the larger social context. But humans are part of this almost a hive. We're almost part of a hive. We depend so much on others. And yet we are so intellectual, we deny it. We try to make up simple stories like, you know, well, morality or love. Trying to explain things that are so ancient, so deep in our nervous system that they don't have words really around them. We have to create words.
0: Mm. It almost sounds like what I'm hearing you say is that the past few decades have sort of fallen into a trap where driven by media, as well as just driven by good intentions of researchers to try to explain and discover what's going on with oxytocin is we may have oversimplified the story and part of that part of that is because really the what we're talking about are core aspects of who we are as human beings. And that when it comes to our nervous system, it is the most complex technology in the universe that we know of. And so it's not quite as simple as us being able to wrap simple words around
1: what's yeah. going on. Yeah. And it's not just that. I, I have had I've been accused of studying love. I never used that word. I sent to a paper, I think, that mm. explains the history. I'm a biologist. For me to use a word like love was professional suicide. But that word was used by others describing what I was doing. Mm. For years, I just didn't discuss it. I said, oh, well, that's your problem. But then I realized I was somewhat off in my own thinking because what people were really searching for and the reason they would come back and look at this simple word like love so often in every level of society is because there is something fundamental here. And it does have a fundamental biology and it involves both oxytocin and vasopressin showed that in our animal bubbles. One alone couldn't do it.
0: How would you describe what is actually happening? When somebody is, say, in the presence of a new person who gives them a gift and they get a surge of oxytocin, what is oxytocin telling their body?
1: Now, first off, I don't think you could reliably show a surge of oxytocin in a gift-giving situation, unless you created one that was so simple that it didn't have any reality to it. If you want to know how to release oxytocin, I can I can summarize some of the things that have been found.
0: Okay, Sure, please.
1: But almost all of them, I, I'll have to think a moment to be sure. I'll have to stay almost all, have also are situations that release vasopressin. And the vasopressin is part of the body's ability to deal with things that happen quickly, urgent needs of the body. But let me give you some examples. Let me offer some examples. One that you mentioned earlier is sexual behavior. Sexual behavior releases both oxytocin and vasopressin. If vasoprosin is an alerting molecule, it's a part of the stress response. And you need it if you're in a situation that requires an urgent response. A better example might be intense exercise. You also get both hormones released at that time. The question is not how do you deal with a short-term, urgent, acute stressor, but how are you going to deal later, after sex, after exercise? What's the next phase? And this is where oxytocin is so critical. So one of the flaws in the scientific literature has been a kind of commingling of acute situations and chronic situations. And this is true for the research on stress in general and for the research on oxytocin and vasopressin. To make it simple, oxytocin is a chronic hormone, a hormone that prepares you for the future, heals wounds, deals with... It deals with what happens after there's been an emergency. Mm. It will also bond us, and this truly, I think, happens. At the time of an emergency, the two together create kind of a perfect storm where we then become very attached to those we're around. This happens in war. It happens in sex. It happens in birth. Birth is not a pure oxytocin experience. It's a mixture of oxytocin, vasopressin, and obviously, thousands of other molecules, I'm only using these two as kind of the pinnacle or most critical molecules in my model. You need some dopamine to make this system work. You, it's a cocktail, okay? It's a perfect cocktail. It's so perfect that there are now 8 billion people on this planet, okay? <laughs> we are so dependent on these factors, and we've been so successful at breeding, not always at doing a good job of taking care of our babies or, you know, our elderly or whatever, but we're really good at at reproducing. Now the question is, how can we optimize the life we have? This is, I think, really quite, it, it got lost somehow, that question.
0: Yeah, we've been really good at acquiring resources and building and pushing progress forward. Technological progress has innovated exponentially. People's lives 300 years ago are more similar to people's lives 600, 900 years ago than they are to our lives today because of the technologies that we have. And that's been amazing. We have supercomputers that are like on my desk right now or in people's pockets that are infinitely more powerful than the supercomputers that sent people to the moon. And yet we're the most depressed human beings that potentially the world has ever seen and potentially the loneliest group of human beings that the world has ever seen.
1: I think we don't want to focus on the negative. I think what we want to do is try to understand how first have a little bit of insight into ourselves as biological creatures mm. and extremely adaptive and say, well, look, what shall we do to feel better? Well, the first thing is to stop worrying about ourselves and start finding things outside of us, meaningful purpose in life, meaning that's an almost instant way of feeling better. The people who are running around doing mass shootings, almost none of them have any sense of anything but themselves. They're stuck in their personal agendas. They are, in my view, probably stuck in a state with a lot of vasopressin and not enough oxytocin.
0: Would it be fair to say that the way that our systems have been designed and constructed, particularly over the past hundred years, have been rooted in a, in a sort of multi-generational ignorance that we just, we just haven't known how to create ways of relating with our technologies and each other that like are really rooted in our biological understanding. And now we have this opportunity because we understand more about the biology mm-hmm. to shape better systems.
1: Yes. yes. Absolutely. If we, we took technology first, technology was driven by war, as you know, by World War I, World War Two, competitions among nations. What wasn't being driven was good health, ways of improving other than through pharmacology kind of clever work around thinking that we could buy a molecule in a bottle and that bottle would be able to make us feel good that you see how well that's gone (laughs) that just didn't work out at all and it's left us in many cases with addiction and dependency that is based on the fact that those molecules that made drug companies like Purdue Pharma rich were in fact very powerful pieces of this ancient system. Instead of understanding this system, they tried to override it. Mm. So fentanyl, oxycodone, these molecules that work only on one piece of the system could not substitute, do not substitute, for the larger kind of biology that we're talking about. We are forced now, this is the point in time, when we have to go back and look at the biological system. And I can point out that even within medicine, this was not done. It was not just pharma but medicine in general, which I've taught medical school off and on for 50 years. And the things that are taught to doctors over that time got less and less physiological and more and more pharmacological.
0: Do you feel like that's still the case? Do you and your husband of 50 plus years, what's your perspective (laughs) on how many medical schools are these days, talking to doctors about nervous systems and like the polyvagal nerve and like our our need for connection and belonging and how that that shapes our health.
1: I work with a group of doctors have for the last two and a half years are interested in these questions. They're clinicians, the guy who runs it's name is David Hanscom and David's a spine surgeon. We meet once or twice a week And David usually starts with, why wasn't I taught this in medical school?
2: Hmm. Okay.
1: Well, he wasn't taught it because medicine was he's almost my age, because medicine's pretty new, the kind of medicine's being practiced right now. And it was taken over by pharmacology and physiology, which used to be the core of medical training, was removed from the curriculum and replaced with molecular biology and pharmacology, which were all useful, but fragments of a much larger system. So no doctor sees a molecule when he meets a patient. He sees a whole organism and then he drops a couple of molecules, he or she, into that person And some of those molecules are really powerful, like the opioids, the fentanyl type molecules. So you can put a person to sleep, but you can't heal them. Hmm. You have to figure out what's wrong, what's gone wrong. You can't cut out the part of the nervous system that's causing pain, for example. The people I work with, Hanscom and his colleagues, are pain doctors. That's what they study because after there's spine surgery, there's often still pain. And so David kept saying, well, why? We took, we fixed the bones and the nerves and the muscles, everything should be fine. Well, it's not always fine. In fact, it's rarely fine. And so the really thoughtful doctors, and that's, those are, they're out there, trust me, everywhere. They just don't have the tools. So, we as a society, and I think our largest, second only to defense, our next largest expenditure is medicine and healthcare. And really, those are both part of the same problem. They're part of defending ourselves, right? We're trying to defend ourselves from outside fears like aggression or intruders or some kind of conflict we're trying to defend ourselves against things like COVID molecules or viruses or many, many unknown diseases. We're full of what they call multiply unexplained symptoms, which tend to be traceable back to the autonomic nervous system. Knowing that helps us, but it doesn't tell us exactly what to do next. So I I think we're at an inflection point. I think we're at a point when we're starting to see relationships among very large things that have accidentally really been omitted from the story. Mm -hmm. Things like what I call sociostasis. A whole system not just the stress axis, but the fact that embedded in it were all of these other molecules like oxytocin and vasopressin that helped tie us to others. That forced us, whether we knew about, we didn't have to know about it 300 years ago. Our bodies were doing these things on their own.
0: And now we have to know about it because just the ways that Our technology has advanced, have drastically changed some things that we we didn't know about.
1: That's right. We were not anticipating the technological revolution. And medicine hadn't caught up with technology. Now, I think if you stand back and look at what we're learning over the last 20, 30 years, you start to see some pretty powerful, important information. Some of it we can use today. You're a therapist. You want to know what can I do today, right? You don't yeah. want to hear stories about 100 years from now.
0: There's yeah. also something really beautiful in what I hear you saying, which is sort of there's this there's this mirror thing that we're, we're stepping into as far as conversation societally around control and narrowing too much onto parts rather than seeing things as a system. And I hear that sort of when we talk about the research history of how we've, we've tried to zoom in and people have even tried to simplify your research into that of, oh, great, let's just give everybody an oxytocin nasal spray and inhaler and they'll be good. That actually, regardless of how powerful any one part within us, whether it's a hormone or a molecule, it's not as simple as as that what we really need to understand is we need to be treating people as systems because that's what we are. And so we can't simplify treating somebody just by one molecule or bits of chemicals we drop into them. We have to understand them as a system and also then as a society we have to understand that we can't just narrow in to trying to manipulate and control, that there's also this space of understanding that we live within these interrelated systems. And that now that we have unlocked all this information about our biology, that there's this opportunity to take what we've learned from the past few decades and to shape better ways to be relating with our bodily systems and our societal systems.
1: Right. Well put now, rather than creating something that appears overwhelming, what my goal is, and I know Dr. Borges is doing the same thing. we're trying to extract from this the most essential elements.
0: Tell us I've got to know
1: well, it's quite simple. he has simplified it in a kind of behavioral terms of fear or threat and safety. So if you want to help a child figure out how to manage their lives, make them feel safe, do everything you know how to from the moment that infant is born to give it safety. Well, that was not the set of principles available when my kids were born. And certainly here in the post-war period, under the influence of B.F. Skinner, people were being told to let their babies cry at their problems, to not pick them up, all right. kinds of behavioral ideas, too cold. Those, in the presence then of the technological revolution, were kind of a perfect storm for creating the problems that we now see. And they're intergenerational. So, asking a parent who wasn't parented themselves to know what to do is pretty tricky, and so we have to give them the simplest information we have, and that's just do what makes your kid feel safe.
0: Yeah, when when I was working with parents, I would I would often say I I do not have a roadmap for what you should do, and there is no playbook, but there is a blueprint, that blueprint is your individual child's nervous system. But then That's when right. we move beyond parenting and, and schools and, and child raising, when we look at how we structure the ways that we as, as adults also relate with each other, we now have technology that we're often relating through. And so I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts, you know, dopamine has sort of become hot and flashy when we talk about the technology world. And when people are talking about opening their phone, they often talk about getting that dopamine hit. And they sort of miss out that it's not just dopamine. When people are swiping to these dating apps and scrolling through Instagram and TikTok, there's all sorts of oxytocin stuff happening too. But I'm curious for you, would, would you say that we're sort of Two questions, really. One, are we sort of like drowning in dopamine and cortisol while having like an oxytocin deficit? And how do we create technology that sort of does the opposite if that's what's happening?
1: Yeah, okay. Well, you're asking really tricky questions because the real answer starts, as I've said, in early life. A Mm. child that's well-reared and has... Good parenting and feels safe, and it doesn't have to be a biological parent, but that child does have to feel safe. That child yeah. can then withstand social media and all of the threats that come, can come from others who themselves are fearful. Mm. So, what you see little battles played out in social media where one person feels bad and they try to make someone else feel bad uh successfully in many cases so it's quite a dangerous period a kind of war theater period again we see this in the people who've turned to mass murder mass shootings these are people who felt bad i don't think a single one of the people who've got out Bought assault rivals and killed people felt good. They were right. looking. They, at they, they
0: experienced a bunch of trauma in their childhood. They didn't get the support that they needed in order to have the safety that they needed to learn how to relate with their body in ways where they could now actually this, be healthy.
1: It's not just learning. I think it's a shift in state hmm. and that's where hormones come in. Okay. These particular hormones that I study are, along with dopamine and opioids and other molecules, they're all working originally adaptively to help us survive and reproduce. But how to explain this, we cannot, with our current biology and our current pharmacology, we really can't improve on nature. We haven't improved on nature. And you could correct me, but I don't think any of the drugs that we have, if, we had, if children are well-raised and healthy and fed, few simple things, they will not require that kind of behavioral meti- medication. And even if you give them behavioral medication, we're not seeing terrific outcomes. You might be able to make someone. It's it's like your analogy of dopamine. I don't I don't like to talk about dopamine because, <laughs> I, I think it's a very, it's a really simple thing. It just says, hey, this is important. I, it's a kind of it's not just the reward molecule. But if we want to solve the problems, we have to think in chronic terms, terms that take into account time. As a human, we have, let's say, we have an average lifespan of around 80 years. During that time, we have challenges that haven't yet been solved for us. We don't know what to eat. We don't know how much to exercise. We know we're probably not exercising enough, most of us, because our biology is the evolutionary history of humans. We were very active. So by not having enough physical activity, we're creating and being tied to a computer. Oh, we're creating a unique physiology that our ancestors didn't have to deal with so mm. things like anxiety that we may feel from being kind of restricted in our movements I, I mean I think getting back to the what can we do questions we have to exercise even if we are handicapped we have to use our bodies otherwise that body will decay the bones will stop working the muscles will stop working and the brain will stop working okay exercise releases oxytocin if if someone wants to know the best way to improve that system and its regulation variations in exercise resistance training intense exercise ideally in a safe environment and a social environment. I could be selling health club memberships. (laughs) All of those things have the potential to be useful. They have to be administered correctly, like any medicine. We need to understand the needs of others, not just ourselves. We have to recognize whether we like it or not, We are social organisms, whether it's complicated, and it is to have friends or relationships. But those are, if we can manage them, and it's interesting as we're talking about this, you realize we have a certain level of freedom and time on our hands, so to speak, left over from no longer washing the clothes and the, you know, at the river. So, yeah, we've,
0: we've unlocked incredible abundance for ourselves. Like, what a beautiful opportunity that we have to be diving well, deep into some of these questions to then talk about how we can build things differently. Like, what, what yeah. an incredible luxury we've unlocked.
1: Well, and, and we're also searching. I think a lot of people are recognizing that they're searching for wisdom. They are in mm. the, the Silicon Valley, so to speak, gave us a lot of information. Imagine the, you know, the Matrix, the movie, The Matrix, all those zeros and ones, right?
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: But it didn't tell us what to do with it. So if we use the Matrix, the movie is a kind of metaphor. They went looking for someone with wisdom because information and data and information was not enough. Now, I understand that artificial intelligence is trying to substitute uh, knowledge and maybe even wisdom, and we'll have to see how well that goes. But if they don't program into that system some kind of wisdom, principles, organizing ideas, then it's likely to produce an, a whole new set of, of misfirings, if you will, or mistakes. Mm. Well,
0: and the there's, there's something beautiful in there about, about wisdom is I I did an interview once with Tom Morris, who's a philosopher, and he has a definition of wisdom, which is embodied insight for living. And so there's there's something beautiful in there in that we actually can't just find wisdom by consuming information. For as human beings, it's an experience of connecting with your body. And so like you and your husband's work, that if, if we really want to live fuller and better lives, if we want to help society live, live fuller and better lives, build a deeper relationship with your body and understand that you are part of a social context where how you relate with other people is essential. To their health and their ability to relate with their body. And that by just like shifting that perspective to opening up to that, that that's really the, the key to shifting our systems is to create more states of being able to belong within ourselves and with each other. And that that is really the key to unlocking ways to better regulate these systems that can't just be treated like a bath bomb of just like throwing in chemicals, but actually. Understanding the beauty of the system we carry and helping it shape and regulate in in ways that help us live a full life,
1: very well put again, and we're at a point when we know only pieces of the story, even Steve's part on the he doesn't talk a lot about the individual nerves that are involved in the system he's interested in. What he's done, because he's a systems thinker, is try to provide some of the organizing principles. And those are there. They're there in old, in ancient wisdom theories Mm. and systems. People knew. They knew you had to be nice to other people. (laughs) That's not news, right? (laughs) They didn't know there was a biology for it. They didn't understand the distinct connection between a fully functional ventral complex and a healthy gut, for example. That wasn't known now. We have bits and bits, more and more bits of the story falling into place. It is really a large puzzle. As I see it, but many pieces of it appeared And many of the relationships have been solved or identified only in the last 88 years since World War II. And that's a very, that's just a moment in time. However, you and I are living in that moment in time and we'd like to maximize it. And so, one thing we can obviously do is we can stand back and look for ancient wisdom we can stand back and feel the embodiment. That doesn't tell us what to have for dinner. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. There's so much, the biology of our system is a bit complicated. I mean, I'm personally, because I think like a biochemist, although I'm really a biologist, I think we are loading our system with some poisons that we aren't identifying. One of them is salt. I think we have so much salt in all of our processed foods and our diets. And that's such a fundamental molecule that's necessary for all aspects of neural function and interacts with the peptides. So I think that's important. I think magnesium, the simple, one of these simple molecules, which turns out if we can believe the internet where 80% of us are deficient at magnesium. And this may be playing a big role in why people can't sleep and why they're anxious. So there's things, these fundamental minerals that we're kind of ignoring in our larger search for the perfect diet. Some of those and I'm not an expert. I'm just pointing out a couple of examples that I sure. personally am concerned about. Magnesium is necessary for oxytocin to work. This was just shown within the last year by studies done at Stanford, beautiful studies of the oxytocin receptor showing that that system is broken without magnesium. It's in, mm. It can't function. Normally, in a person living in a kind of historic world where you would grow potatoes and get and live off of nuts and seeds, it would be pretty impossible to be magnesium deficient. But people claim, again, I don't know if this is true, that we've depleted our foods, our soil with repeated use for agricultural, the creation of food from that kind of agriculture and this may be something that we've missed sort of an obvious but big thing in our
0: drive for for speed of change we we may have undermined some systems crucial for our sustainability and regeneration
1: right and by understanding the basic physiology. So if we just take this simple approach I have, which is since there's so much to know, I will focus on how does oxytocin help me understand it. That's my personal kind of touchstone, right? Yeah. When I discovered in this literature, brand new literature, that oxytocin wasn't able to work without magnesium I have this huge, aha, oh my God, no wonder a lot of these experiments where they give extra oxytocin don't seem to do anything. The receptors not function. It's in a person who doesn't have magnesium in their diet or if necessary supplement. I, you know, I'm just starting to trace this down because I thought, wow it's so simple. I couldn't, I have insomnia, and I'll wake up in the night, and this really common. people my age who are almost all magnesium deficient.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'll wake up, and I'm wide awake for hours, and then I'll go back to sleep again. With magnesium, I can generally sleep. Now, that was just wow. kind of a A huge aha experience. Huge. And because I thought I was, that was sort of one of those things that was going to happen, whether I liked it or not, that I would have sleep problems and no amount of melatonin or drugs. I won't take any sleep meds of the, you know, the typical ones don't work anyway.
2: Sure.
1: But I realized, oh my, my little touchstone here, oxytocin. At the core of feeling calm is not able to function without this essential element you know we we are based on the periodic table and magnesium sodium these are very fundamental molecules if you load a system with too much sodium you displace other molecules and this should not just be the domain of so of so-called naturopaths or people who are not mainstream medicine, this should be right in the middle. This is basic fundamental physiology. It's not woo-woo science. And so Amen. what we have to do is figure out our basic physiology so that we don't try to force. So, so let's say that somebody has some kind of defect in that system, either the like the oxytocin system, all of the attempts to fix it, even with loving kindness meditation, are not going to work because the system can't fix itself. It's got to have the building blocks. So our basic physiology has to be understood. It has to get back at the center of medicine not just giving drugs, but asking these very fundamental questions. This was the domain of basic sciences, but when basic sciences shifted to molecular biology, also about 1980, there was a huge loss of interest in, in physiology. And that has to be, that needs to be rectified because we have a lot of knowledge that hasn't been put together and used to create wisdom.
0: Okay. Amen. Two final questions for you. One is what I'm hearing you say about what, what we're still just beginning to really learn about oxytocin and all of these different parts within this beautiful orchestra of the, of the systems that we carry. We're just beginning to really start to tap into a lot of these different layers. And many would say, Artificial intelligence is this great opportunity for us to use technology to process more information and help us discover more things. Are you more hopeful or fearful when it comes to AI? And what are you hopeful or curious about as we sort of explore what it looks like?
1: Well, I'm agnostic. I (laughs) think that it's going to depend on the level of information that's used. So if I, Let's take my example of basic minerals. Okay. Sure. Let's take magnesium. Okay. Without magnesium, we die. It's that simple. All of the artificial intelligence will not fix that. If I don't know my base, what I need to be alive, how, I, how could I hope to improve on this with a, a, an algorithm? Okay, so it's only, these, these systems are as good as the information that goes into them. So it's not that artificial intelligence itself is good or bad. It's a technology as I understand it. But what we have to ask is, where's the basic information coming from? How did we lose track of the need for that knowledge. So I'll give you an example, 1981, I did a sabbatical at Stanford with a chap named Julian Davidson. Julian was in the Department of Physiology at Stanford, had been for several years. He was the only person in the department, the only person in that magnificent medical school. Everybody else, was called some kind of molecular biology. And they had gone deeper and deeper, as we would love to have happen, into asking questions about subcellular systems or, or systems that were very small, small questions. But the bigger questions were lost. And Julian was the last teacher, and he eventually died. And that system, I don't know. Now we could look and see if they even have a physiology department. I doubt it. Instead, it's been fragmented into smaller and smaller pieces in most places. Now we kind of have to put this back together. I have no idea of the capability of what we're calling artificial intelligence to help us or harm us. It'll probably do both in the beginning. But the question is, and this is still the human problem since we're still the parent of the AI, can we set the values into our values an appreciation for these evolutionary questions, evolutionary solutions? Can we use nature to help us understand what's important. So there's this value judgment piece. I don't know how AI manages that. I'm sure there's the mechanism.
0: It's a complex question for them. They're, they're constantly still still really dancing through themselves. Yeah, to your point, it's, it's a hard well, question and it's one they've really got to explore and answer the right way.
1: Well, you have to say, where do you look for the answer? The body, physiology, that's really fundamental. Awareness of other, that was left out of physiology up until, well, it's still left out. So all of the research on anatomy and physiology was done based on individuals. Now, when I started studying oxytocin, I said, whoa, this isn't working. That's never going to work because (laughs) fundamentals of social need for others, physiology of sociality, has to be taken into account. It's yeah. bigger than the N of one. So we have some, we have a few challenges, but there are brilliant people out there. And I think it's they're given, perhaps not given, I to ask different questions. I think that's where your podcast is useful. I'm happy, always happy to talk to people who are trying to answer these questions. My small piece of the story has the advantage of being an ancient one a 200 million year old piece and so embedded in knowledge of it are some of these secrets and they are secrets they're still secrets so people involved in AI and the technology world I'm sure they're asking some of these questions but they may not be looking in exactly the right place. So I think the autonomic nervous system was left out of basic physiology and we have put that, try to put that back in. The ancient hormones, especially ones that had been misidentified as female reproductive hormones only, that molecule oxytocin was simply not studied. It was literally avoided for probably 40 years on the assumption that if it was only important to females, it wasn't important to males. Well, Mm. you have to trust me when I tell you it's really important to males.
0: So Dr. Carter, if every person in the world who identifies as a leader were listening right now, and we could guarantee that whatever you're about to say, they would truly and deeply hear. What would you say to them?
1: Oh, well, I think they need to take into account the wisdom of the body, the importance of recognizing how we got here, evolutionary principles. Those were left out of medicine. They have to be reintroduced. And then to look at the world in terms of long-term solutions, not just quick fixes.
0: Beautiful. Okay, I have one bonus question for you, which is... (laughs) um, (laughs) Well, I've been asking people on the podcast about dating in the sense that Generation Z are going on less dates than millennials. And so we know the crisis of loneliness. Mm -hmm. We know that human beings crave to be together. And there's a lot of anxiety and fear particularly for this youngest generation, for navigating dating. There aren't a lot of norms these days. So if we were to create some structure, maybe it's like a game for a first date and you get to add something that would be like a question or an activity that could be built into this game that people could choose to use. What would you add in for a first date?
1: Well, I would try to encourage people, I think, to inquire about the awareness of others. I think if someone is openly narcissistic, self-oriented, we could say, oh, that's bad, and it is bad. (laughs) It's a definite clue to be careful, but you can also suspect that they're living in a threat state. And so if you want to get to know other people, you're going to have to yourself find your safe spaces and then help them find theirs. So the goal might not be to find a, a long-term partner or mate, but just a friend and to identify, you know, we're all part of this system. So as we talk to others or we interact with others, we're helping to either... Make better or worse some of the problems we've talked about here, the problems of loneliness. I think, I mean, the, the solution for the individual doesn't really exist. It exists in the context of saying, well, what can I do to help this other person feel safe? What can I do to improve their life over time? Can I be there for them when they're, they lose their job? or when somebody dies in their family. So instead of focusing on romance, which I think evolves naturally when people feel safe, I think we need to focus more on safety. Start with the most fundamental property of relationships.
0: Beautiful. Well, Dr. Carter, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your your work. If listeners aren't aware, you know, your work has certainly impacted all of our lives in in some way or another in the way that it has helped us unlock deeper understandings of ourselves and impacted everything within health and social science. And so thank you for your work and thank you for making the time to be here.
1: Thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure.
0: All right, everybody. Thanks for listening.